Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 172, A Violent Start to a Violent Century. Now, first I've got a bunch of Patreon thank yous, so uh, basically, yeah, it's been a very, very generous month and I just want to thank you all so much. So first, huge, huge thanks to Tervel Atanasov for his very generous donation. Then we have a bunch of new patrons and yeah. We have, let's see, uh, Jordan Bakalov, Sean Kershaw, Kim Durden, Dryden, not, not sure which, uh, Rainier Jarzma, again, I hope I pronounced that right, and Anna Makedonska. So thank you all so, so much for your support. And of course, I have to say thank you to returning patron AJ Myers and to Sky O'Donnell for increasing their pledge. Now, last time... We saw the conservative Stoilov government trying and address the railway problem in Rumelia with disastrous consequences. As a result, the liberals took power and the peasants have been hit with harsh new taxes. This has triggered the founding of a new agrarian peasant political party. Well, I, I guess it can't quite decide whether it wants to be a quote-unquote political party or more of a lobbying organization, but you get the idea. Meanwhile, Prince Ferdinand lost his wife shortly after she gave birth to their fourth child. As a result, he's feeling particularly overwhelmed and maybe even despondent by the burden of raising his children, though frankly, you know, he's a prince, he's got help, and dealing with the new liberal government, as well as navigating the tricky political waters between Austria-Hungary and Russia. Lastly, the supremacists seem to have finally taken over the MRO. And while the two organizations are still technically separate, they are now collaborating together to advance the cause of Macedonian independence from the Ottomans. And so that's where we begin. It's 1900, the dawn of the 20th century. It only took us 172 plus episodes to get here. Bulgaria is now struggling to balance its economic development with its very difficult geopolitical situation and the need to fund its army, which... You know, a lot of, as we've talked about, a lot of the Bulgarian budget goes to the army. But before we really get into all that, I want to backtrack a few years and talk about uh, a different kind of story. You'll recall many episodes ago, we discussed Evloki Gergeev. He was born in Karlovo back in 1819 for ultimately becoming a very, underline very, successful and wealthy merchant and banker in what would soon become Romania. I emphasize the success because, from the numbers I could find, in the four decades between 1839 and 1879, uh, the basically the stock, like the, the amount of uh, assets his company had, grew by 95,000%. So he was a very, very successful businessman, more or less. So, by the time he was an old man, he was the wealthiest Bulgarian alive by a pretty wide margin. And... Fortunately, like many wealthy men of this particular era, he devoted himself greatly to charity and using his money for good works. I talked before about how he attempted to open a factory in Karlovo, which is sort of half charity. I mean, it aimed to be profitable, but the profits were supposed to go to Karlovo to fund, I think it was women's education. So he was trying to kind of get some low-level industry going in Bulgaria, but as we talked about before, that proved exceptionally difficult because, well, just the whole economic situation Bulgaria was in made it really tough to kind of get domestic industry going. But he funded hospitals and schools in Romania, Thessaloniki, and Constantinople. 
However, his grandest ambition was to fund the transformation of Sofia University, still the only basically school of higher education in all of Bulgaria. Although it still is not technically called Sofia University, but I'll just call it that for clarity's sake. Now, what would become Sofia University had been founded back in 1888, but the grand main building that we now associate it was not yet built. Now, back in 1896, Evlogi Gergiev had donated a plot of land in central Sofia, which is where the university is now, and about 800,000 leva for the construction of the main building. Also around that time, Gergiev had become a close collaborator with our old friend Ivan Geshov. Um, yeah, basically, they started working together on a lot of his philanthropic endeavors. This made some sense because Geshov, well, Geshov was a very able administrator and financial professionals, and it helped that the two were actually related, though not super closely related. So, all this takes us to 1897, when Gergiev died suddenly of bronchial pneumonia. Now, to the great surprise of many of Gergiev's relatives, Geshov was put in charge of executing the will as it involved ensuring a lot of money went to all these various charities and institutions. But the real shock to many, particularly Gergiev's family members who had expected to inherit his massive wealth, which, for reference, around his death was somewhere around 20 million leva, is that, well, 40% or so of that wealth was set aside for specific donations to all kinds of charities and uh, you know, things he had funded in the past, and what was left was supposed to be inherited by Geshov, not Gergiev's more direct family members. Now, what wasn't a shock here was that this triggered intense rumors. All of Bulgaria was suddenly speculating about why Geshov, of all people, had been the one to inherit so much money. Remember, this time, fortunes like that were exceptionally rare, and the sudden minting of a brand new millionaire was huge news. The other big news was that the largest portion of his fortune to be donated, 6 million leva, was to go to, again, what would soon become Sofia University, so... That was getting a lot more money. But still, the shock that basically a lot of Geshov's uh, or a lot of um, Gergeyev's family members were kind of being passed over in favor of Geshov was weird to everyone. People wondered why. Now, Satelova wrote in her biography of Ivan Geshov that after Gergeyev and Geshov had first met, quote, Gergeyev became ever more certain that Geshov, with his business acumen and attention to detail, would conscientiously carry out his wishes. For that reason, Geshov had taken precedence over closer relatives, an uncle, nephews, and nieces. End quote. But those family members now contested the will in court. Most of those family members had been given, for reference, somewhere between four and 16,000 leva. So, you know, think about that. 20 million leva was the fortune. They expected to inherit a large chunk of it. They expected to become millionaires. And instead, they got four to 16,000 leva, so a little bit less than what they expected. Now, granted, this wasn't one of those situations where you have all the greedy kind of family members. You think of like that movie Knives Out, oh, everyone's trying to get out the money and yada, yada, yada. A lot of uh, Gergeyev's family members had actually worked with him at his bank for many, many years. They had felt they'd showed great devotion to the man. They'd really helped him build his fortune. And so, yeah, it wasn't just sort of raw greed and things. They were a little bit hurt and shocked that that uh, they felt that their contributions were being overlooked. But the anger towards Geshov extended beyond just the family of the deceased. 
Many were wondering why the Gergea fortune wasn't actually greater than 20 million lava as they thought it would be, and speculated that maybe Geshev had actually destroyed or hidden away some pages of the will. Others believed that Geshev had actually taken money that was supposed to go towards projects in Macedonia, because basically nothing in the will specified anything towards Macedonian projects, and considering that was such a huge issue at the time, and a lot of everyday Bulgarians were giving money towards Macedonian organizations, it seemed weird. Uh, and so there was just all kinds of speculation. You imagine the newspapers were all over this. And in general, Geshev's political opponents really made this a political issue. While this was all pretty tough on Geshev because he was a quiet man. He was very conflict averse. He just wanted everyone to be happy and not to make a big fuss. And so he ultimately decided to increase the money inherited by many of the family members just to basically get them to drop all the legal issues and to kind of move on. And, well, that ends the story of Evlogi Gergeyev. Today, statues of him and his brother grace the grand entrance to the main building of Sofia University and his charitable work to the general welfare of many thousands in Bulgaria, but also in Romania and the Ottoman Empire, and eventually Greece, was really quite commendable. To me, he's a good guy. You know, he was a very successful Bulgarian. He showed that what Bulgarians could achieve when they had the kind of opportunities that were so often denied to Bulgarians of his era. And he really tried to give it back as much as he could and make the communities and the, the places that he came from better. So a fond farewell to Gergiev. Now this takes us back to 1900 when that same biography of Geshev describes his impressions returning to Sofia after being gone for quite a while. He wrote, quote, The capital had changed a great deal. The central streets now had electric lighting. The first trams were running, and handsome new buildings had been erected. But Bulgaria was in financial crisis. The state treasury was empty, and urgent economic needs forced the principality to seek a foreign loan. The brutal rule of the Radoslavovists had created political instability and people were growing unhappy about the growing corruption. Prince Ferdinand had tried to avoid a ministerial crisis by installing caretaker cabinets, but Todor Ivanchov's government, which came to power on the 1st of October 1899, proved utterly helpless. End quote. Now, that reference to the Radoslavov liberals being brutal was basically referencing their suppression of peasant unrest in response to that 10% tax. So that's what that meant. And, well, remember, these protests were massive, with multiple gatherings of over 10,000 peasants recorded in the first few months of the year alone. During these meetings, agrarian leaders worked hard to ensure that things stayed peaceful, which, you know, for a gathering of 10,000 angry peasants, you can imagine keeping things calm and peaceful was not an easy task. But despite all this, many leaders of these demonstrations were soon arrested. The government basically wasn't taking any chances. I mean, you could imagine multiple 10,000 plus sized uh, demonstrations against a government policy is a pretty scary thing for people in Sofia. Now, when one of these mass demonstrations was scheduled in Varna, soldiers blocked the roads to prevent peasants from gathering, and many of those who did make it into the city were arrested. Soon, though, a crowd of about 2,000 peasants, ignoring pleas from their leaders, marched to the local police headquarters and demanded the release of the main speaker of the event, who himself had been arrested. 
The police chief told them that basically he wasn't being held in that police station, and so they marched around the city kind of shouting various slogans until a rumor began to spread that in fact the speaker was being held in the main police station, and worse than that, he was being beaten there. The crowd, upon learning this, rushed over and were met by a line of soldiers with bayonets fixed. Believing that the soldiers wouldn't dare harm them, many began to throw rocks at the, be- at the building and at the soldiers themselves. The officer leading the men yelled that they would open fire if the crowd did not disperse. He was met with a cry of, we are prepared to die. And within moments, some peasants attempted to rush to the building, and the soldiers indeed opened fire, pouring two volleys into the mass of people, killing at least four and wounding many more. The crowd dispersed, but vowed to return with weapons to avenge their fallen comrades. However, by the next day, Varna was put under martial law and hundreds of cavalry had arrived to reinforce the troops there. But the authorities decided that the best way was to actually treat the leaders that they had arrested with leniency and basically release them in an attempt to avoid any further bloodshed. But shockingly enough, this wasn't even the worst of of the violence. That took place in May, where between 120 and 150 people were killed with another 800 wounded when protests were suppressed in the village of Durankulak in Dobruja, which it's kind of close to um, Balchik if you've been there. Here, peasants basically engaged in straight-up shootouts with local gendarmes. In this environment, party leaders, agrarian party leaders that is, were unsure of whether to continue to kind of act independently or to try to work with other political parties who opposed the 10% tax. You know, they were just a bit, you could say, kind of paralyzed. They weren't sure what to do. They knew they were sitting on a powder keg, but how to control it in order to get rid of that tax. Well, for now, they would remain unsure precisely how they should tarnish all this immense anger, and, well, that's where they are. Indeed, despite all of this unrest, the law was implemented, the law being the tax, early in the year. Soon afterwards, the National Assembly also voted to give a general amnesty for crimes committed during the Stoilov regime, which... None of my sources really mentioned why they did this, but my guess is that considering Stoilos' political party doesn't hold much power now, maybe it's because they don't really want to see corruption punished because most of the parties are doing corrupt things when they're in power, and so they just want to kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just a way to to uh, make sure that if they lose power and like the Stoilos people take power, that they won't come after them. Now, All this brings us to the summer of 1900 and back to the Macedonian organizations. Under the leadership of Boris Serafov, the supremacists were feeling pretty revitalized after years of stagnation. However, at the same time, a rift was developing within the organization. That rift basically came in the form of a Bulgarian colonel named Ivan Tsonchev. Tsonchev had been supporting the MRO since 1895, but he was also well-respected in the military and reportedly close with Prince Ferdinand himself. However, like most of his fellow officers, he felt that the MRO's idea of a peasant-led uprising was basically doomed to fail, and so he began working to put the MRO under the control of Bulgarian army officers who he felt would be better able to organize and lead an uprising to free Macedonia. Now, Serafov actually agreed with this, although he couldn't say so publicly. 
And if that sounds weird because wait, didn't Sarafov, wasn't he an MRO guy who was basically you a tool for the MRO to control the supremacists, but now he's working with the supremacists to take control of the MRO. Yes. We can't know why he kind of had this about face. We, we can't read his mind, but that is what is happening. So as this new division was beginning to manifest, the seventh Macedonian Congress of the supremacists took place in Sofia with the main topic at hand being the question of whether to continue the more peaceful and passive tactics in Macedonia, or whether to turn towards more violent actions. Ultimately, it was agreed that they would support mass action in accordance with the MRO's principles. So kind of letting, eh, more or less aligning the two organizations and agreeing that although it wasn't imminent, they would support a kind of uprising. They also decided to change the organization's name and add in Adrianople, or Odrin in Bulgarian, to emphasize that they didn't just want to liberate Macedonia, they also wanted to liberate Thrace. But while the new aims of the supremacists towards the MRO didn't come up at the Congress, shortly afterwards, Serafov requested that just as two members of the MRO sat on the supremacists' na- uh, kind of main committee, so too should two supremacists sit on the committee of the MRO. So to kind of even things out there a little bit. They also wanted Bulgarian military officers to act as advisors to the various regional MRO committees, with the general idea being to, again, switch things and instead of having the MRO control the supremacists, as had been recently, to now have the supremacists and the Bulgarian officer corps exert far more control over the MRO. However, the MRO basically said, absolutely not. They immediately rejected all these demands. So now, suddenly, the MRO and the supremacists are competing again, and cooperation between them basically ground to a halt. Now, again, this all highlights the weird transition that Sarafov has made at this point, from being the MRO's tool to control the supremacists to now being a tool of the supremacists to control the MRO. Now, Perry, Duncan Perry, speculates that he may have originally, Sarafov may have originally thought that the MRO had the best chance of liberating Macedonia, its organization, its tactics, but maybe he since decided that the military experience brought by the supremacists was now necessary for those aims. So that's one bit of speculation as to why Sarafov may have made this shift, but we'll never know for sure. Now, while all this was happening, a Macedonian-born Vlach, who was a professor living in Bucharest, was assassinated. Now, he had repeatedly denounced the MRO, and it's believed that Boris Serafov may have had him killed on behalf of the supremacists to help kind of rebuild the relationship with the MRO. So, a, a bit funny, right? Like, hey, uh, you know, hey, babe, I know we, we've had a hard time. You know, things haven't been great with us, but that guy you hate, I killed him. So, are we good? You know, my comical little version of that, but it's pretty much what was happening here. But, problem was... As opposed to most of the other kind of assassinations and things that uh, the Macedonian organizations have taken part in in the past, this one didn't take place in Macedonia or Bulgaria. It took place in Romania, which meant that this was now a diplomatic incident. In response, Romania actually massed troops on the Bulgarian border, and there was a real possibility that war might break out in the Balkans for the second time in three years. Now, Jumping a bit ahead to spring of 1901, Bulgaria ultimately avoided conflict by arresting many senior members of the supremacists, including Serafov, but he was ultimately acquitted due to a lack of evidence, and basically I'll talk more about all that next episode, but just to give you some idea of where this is going and, 
you know, spoiler alert, war doesn't break out. But although Serafov avoided prison time, his arrest forced him to resign the presidency of the Supreme Committee, which enabled Colonel Tsonchev to take over. Serafov attempted to gain control again once he was released, but couldn't manage. Thus, it now seemed that the final solid link between the supremacists and the MRO was broken, as the supremacists were now run by a Bulgarian army officer intent on basically making them the main kind of Macedonian organization. Again, I'll talk a lot more about that, all of this in the next episode, but just to get an idea of what's happening right now. But this wasn't the only rivalry brewing over the Macedonian issue. I know you were thinking, oh, the, the Macedonian issue, the, the Macedonian revolutionary organizations, this all seems too simple. Why couldn't it be more complicated? Well, good news, it's about to get more complicated. So back in 1897, an organization called the Brotherhood of Mercy was formed in Thessaloniki to fight what it called Serbian propaganda in Macedonia. That same year, another group called the Revolutionary Brotherhood was founded in the same city with the goal of opposing the MRO's more passive approach and basically advocating for more overt and violent action in, in favor of Bulgarian-Macedonian unification. Now, this Revolutionary Brotherhood also supported the Bulgarian Exarchate, which you'll recall the MRO didn't really get along with the Bulgarian Exarchate, so yeah, it, it opposed the MRO for that reason as well. Now, these two brotherhood groups shared a lot of members, and basically around 1898, they decided to just merge together and form one organization. This new brotherhood developed close ties with both the supremacists and the exarchate. Ironically, this meant that they essentially were advocating for the exarchate's peaceful approach and the supremacists' more violent approach at the same time, so it seems kind of contradictory and weird, but, you know, why make this simple? But overall, the Brotherhood, despite all this, it, it really failed to attract members. It didn't gain much traction. The MRO was still far more appealing to young Bulgarians in and around Thessaloniki and Macedonia. Thus, when some of the leaders of the Brotherhood met with some leaders of the supremacists in Sofia and suggested that the Brotherhood should take over the MRO, they weren't really taken that seriously because they were just not a potent force. Instead, Sorafov told the Brotherhood to work with the MRO for their common goals, but the Brotherhood wasn't very interested in this. Now, following these events, the relationship between the Brotherhood and the MRO got so bad that the Brotherhood decided to assassinate several senior MRO members, including most of its founders. Perry, though, sums up what happened, writing, quote, If the attempts occurred at all, they were amateurish and unsuccessful. No one came to harm at their hands, end quote. So, although the Brotherhood seems dead set on destroying the MRO or taking it over, the good news for the MRO is that they don't seem to be good at it. Ah, but that doesn't mean that assassinations weren't happening. The Brotherhood did, se did send a five-man Cheta out to fight a kind of nearby MRO Cheta, and basically the Brotherhood Cheta's leader was killed by an MRO assassin, and the Cheta just kind of disbanded. So, Another example of the Brotherhood being pretty ineffectual. So, after this and several other failures, the Brotherhood ultimately decided just to reconcile with the MRO, and after lengthy negotiations, the Brotherhood agreed to disband and join them. Although, many members saw this as more of a chance to undermine the MRO from within rather than genuinely kind of giving up their ambitions. Again, quoting Duncan Perry, quote, The MRO Central Committee, 
presumably thinking it got the best out of this deal, actually admitted a Trojan horse into its midst, end quote. So the MRO believed that it had won, and this was a chance to repair relations with the Exarchate and the supremacists, but it's also possible that they sowed the seeds for their own destruction. Time will tell. Otherwise, the summer of 1900 saw a Russian expedition to Macedonia write that it believed that the Macedonians had a, quote, Bulgarian character, end quote, reinforcing the Bulgarian argument on the matter. Now, I'm phrasing it this way because these ethnographic maps of Macedonia that, you know, a lot of them were produced around the late 19th, early 20th century, they can't be taken as hard fact because the thing that they're trying to map, the ethnic distribution, blah, 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 is really, really complex and subjective and not very well suited to being stuck on a map. For example, one could classify Slavic speakers as Serbs, or Bulgarians, or Macedonians, or just as Slavs, depending on the point they wanted to make. Likewise, should Muslims be classified as Turks, as just Muslims, or broken up between Turks, Roma, and Albanians? Basically, all these kinds of studies should have a kind of asterisk next to them. And I explained my last deep dive in, into the Macedonian question, my thoughts on this, but just to kind of bear that in mind, that we even, you know, out there, if you see one of these kind of ethnographic maps, they're tricky and a little problematic. But again, thinking about the realities on the ground, having an expedition from a great power argue in favor of the Bulgarian position was certainly welcome news in Sofia. So, Jumping into the fall of 1900, Gotze Delchev conducted an inspection tour of Thrace after doing the same in Macedonia during the spring. He was aiming to find ways to improve coordination between Thrace and Macedonia and generally see how supremacist organizational plans were progressing. Now, we haven't heard from him in a bit, but essentially he's been off learning how to make bombs and even establishing a kind of mini bomb factory near Kustendil, uh, which, if you don't know, is in Bulgaria, but very, very, very close to the Macedonian border. But overall, it's clear that the Macedonian question was really heating up as an issue in Bulgaria. Now, as an example, around the same time that uh, that um, Gotze Delchev was touring Thrace, a play called A Macedonian Blood Wedding was supposed to be staged in Sofia, but the Todor Ivanchev government banned it to avoid angering the Ottoman government. Mijigleni describes what happened. Quote, as crowds gathered outside the theater, mounted police blocked the entrance and warned the crowds to disperse. Risking their lives under the horses' feet, the actors attempted to force their way through. Unfortunately for the police, two of the most bullish Cheta leaders in Sofia, Slavko Kovachev and Boris Serafov, along with 30 of their armed men, had decided to attend the opening. Storming out of the theater, firing his pistol, Serafov screamed, A Macedonian blood wedding will be performed this evening, and here is its defender. The police beat a hasty retreat under an armed guard. Blood wedding did indeed take place. End quote. Overall, though, the Ivanchev government was really struggling on the international stage, only having just narrowly avoided war with Romania and basically with the Russians and the Ottomans, the other Balkan states, all getting increasingly angry at Sofia over the uptick in revolutionary activity in Macedonia. Internally, the suppression of the violent peasant, or the violent suppression of the peasant revolts also led many to abandon the liberals. As you'll recall, the peasants used to be largely supportive of the liberals. As a result of all this, Ivanchov resigned in November, but decided to continue at the head of a kind of non-party cabinet for the time being. So, 
Basically, this is a kind of nonpartisan caretaker government. Though Ivanchev was still technically prime minister, in reality, this new government was run by Prince Ferdinand and his close supporter, General Rachel Petrov. And I'll discuss him and what this all meant in the next episode. But the government was still working to suppress both the supremacists and the agrarians. The supremacists actually wanted to schedule their 8th Congress for March of 1901, but the authorities banned it. The agrarians, for their part, held their own 2nd Congress, or tried to, but it too was banned. The government said that this was to prevent the spread of a recent outbreak of scarlet fever. So, the Agrarian Congress was ultimately rescheduled and moved to Sofia, where it did occur in December. Now, the second attempt was allowed because it occurred once that kind of non-party government came to power, and it seems it wasn't really in a strong position to oppose the agrarians, so they were allowed to meet. Now, at this agrarian gathering, the main issue was whether they would participate in the new elections scheduled for early 1901. The resulting debate was intense, but ultimately, the agrarians decided to remain a kind of lobbying organization and not officially a political party with its own candidates. But despite this, many people running for election did call themselves agrarians, and many local drushbi, the kind of local organs of the agrarian party, did endorse candidates. So the agrarians were kind of half participating, you could say. Otherwise, finishing up the year, throughout 1900, Bulgaria got its first hydroelectric plant, which supplied 600 Sofia street lamps with power. You'll recall uh, Ivan Gashov talking about how suddenly Bulgaria had electric street lights. And also, this is the year where they got their first electric tram, which uh, Gishov also referenced. It was also the year where Bulgaria had its first ever opera, staged in the city of Kazanluk. And overall, though, Bulgaria was entering 1901 with a weak, no-party government. A powerful but very fractured agrarian movement unsure of basically what to do with itself. And a likewise very powerful but very fractured set of Macedonian organizations all amidst increasingly hostile neighbors, angry at Bulgaria over the increasing kind of heat of the Macedonian issue. So it's a chaotic time. It's a difficult time. To me, Bulgaria is sitting on a powder keg. If you look at the combination of all the armed men that represent the, the peasants angry at this 10% tax, then you look at all the armed uh, Macedonian factions and all the people training to basically be guerrilla fighters and things, it's uh, it's a scary time. It's a time where a lot is happening. And in the next episode, we'll see new elections, a lot of political movements, and some momentous new events for those Macedonian organizations, including perhaps the most famous kidnapping in Bulgarian history. In other words, well, things are going to be happening with the powder keg and you won't want to miss it. So I'll see you next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the link in the description for more information about this episode, images, timeline, major characters, all that kind of stuff. And I'll see you next time.